Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Kabilis. In our last episode, which was part one out of two parts about uh, autism and low frustration tolerance, uh, we talked about in part one the signs of low frustration tolerance, the causes, the strengths and struggles of having low frustration tolerance, um, when neurotypical people also experience low frustration tolerance, and what can be done to increase your window of tolerance. Um, now, in part two, we're going to talk in more detail about low frustration tolerance and the way that it impacts teachers, whether they are on the autism spectrum or not, how adults can support students that are experiencing low frustration tolerance, and how low frustration tolerance could be better supported in the workplace for neurodiverse employees. Okay, so let's get into suggestions for addressing low frustration tolerance. So I love this list. There's a, a lot of good things here. And so as I talk about these lists, if you're a parent, think about, you know, which of these things would work for your child and at their level of self diagnosis, self evaluation. And as if you're uh, an adult on the spectrum, which of these resonates with you? All right. So one example is to write down all the triggers for low frustration tolerance and possibly the times of day that these triggers occur. So we live in a very regulated world, especially if we're at work or at school. You know, is there certain times of the day where we're triggered, right? And what are those? Um, identifying those can be helpful. Um, change any external triggers that could be increasing agitation, both from the environment that you're in, perhaps, and the people that you're w- working with. Reflect on emotional management skills needed to develop resilience and flexibility. Reflect on your core thoughts and beliefs impacting those triggers. Determine your edge. In what ways is frustration tolerable and what ways is it too much? Develop self-care routines and emotional coping skills for dealing with frustration. Establish a mindfulness practice involving somatic therapy, yoga, or meditation to create mind-body awareness and increase emotional flexibility. Have routines that support the expression and release of frustration, stimming body movement, making art, taking a walk, those kinds of things. Asking for help and learning about a skill that you might be lacking, which would help in social interactions. Uh, Reflect on the ways that low frustration has been a positive influence in your life or work on ways where it could serve a positive purpose. Um, Other things is practice reframing your thinking, alternative outlooks and problem solving. Um, normalizing low frustration tolerance with, with other people. In other words, talk to a neurotypical support person on what their low frust- frustration tolerance looks like. And this can also help with boundary setting in a close relationship. It's building empathy, right? And practice failing forward. How to turn failure, loss, and frustration into success. Sounds like a book. And it is. John Maxwell writes about this extensively in his book, Failing Forward, Turning Mistakes into Stepping Stones for Success. All right. So let's now talk about low frustration tolerance as it relates to the classroom. Nicole, what have you noticed about your students with autism and low frustration tolerance? Um, So I guess non-artistic students really struggled with the open-ended expectations of an art assignment. Um, They would prefer to have a craft activity that has instructions with a picture of the exact outcome they want Mm -hmm. and um, needing a lot of support with conceptual thinking. So with 
and and it's not that I feel like those students will have like meltdowns or tantrums or like, you know, visible anger. Usually what happens is like they just sit there and they just stare at their paper and, you know, and I've talked to my students about like, this sounds familiar. if you're stuck, raise your hand and I will come help you because right. like, otherwise I have to read the body language of like every mm -hmm. kid in the room and see like who's working, who's not working. And if I see a student who's just like staring at their paper for long periods of time and not doing anything, then I have to step in and help. Um, and that tends to be more of the response. And so I think that what I try to coach my students on is like raising your hand is a self-advocacy skill because I think what they feel and maybe they're, you know, scared to raise their hand because they don't mm -hmm. want it to look like they need help. So they wait for me to notice. Um, but, you know, yeah. that delays getting their needs met, you know, exactly. raise your hand or stand up and, and come grab me mm -hmm. so that I can help you. Um, and, and I think that, you know, some of those students are just so left-brained that mm -hmm. it's, and, you know, that because art is so open-ended, it's like, they just, they just shut down. They don't know what to mm. do. And so usually what I help them to get out of that is, you know, we'll kind of verbally talk things out, or I like to do like a really rough sketch. So then mm -hmm. they have something on their paper and then they can mm. go, Oh, all right, now right, here's right. what I can do. And usually right. like uh, these types of students really need um, me to come over frequently and they'll go, mm -hmm. does this look good? What do I do next? Okay, right. you know, so, I, and I know some teachers get frustrated with that. I'm okay with it because I understand that that's just really hard for them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and then the more that, the more predictability they get, then when they do another drawing project and then they're like, okay, I just went through this process. Now I know what to do by myself. Some kids get it right away. Some people just need that structure for the whole semester of that class. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, I've had students that they really hate sitting still for long periods of time having to make art. The previous school I taught at um, had block days. An hour and a half of making art for a kid who's, that that's not their jam. That's really, really hard. You know, right. at least in, in like your classes, which is social studies, at least there's like a variety or, you know, if you're working on something for 90 minutes, maybe it's like a paper or something, but you know, at least there's right. variety in most of the day. Whereas art, it's like you have your instruction, you have your critique, and then most of the class period is just working. Yeah. And that can be really tough for neurodiverse kids who just cannot focus that long. Um, you know, I, I've also noticed some autistic students really have intolerance for making art in an unfamiliar environment surrounded by mm -hmm. peers that can judge their work. Mm. And and that's really hard because I need to see what they're doing to give them feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you try to problem solve, but, you know, I've talked about this before, like sometimes art classes are just not a good fit for some students because there are just certain things that you can't change about an art class because of mm. what the goal of the class is. And, um, and for them to avoid, 
you know, well, I don't mm -hmm. want to make this around my peers. Well, that's an important skill. You know, the, the connection to community mm. and getting right, right. feedback from peers is a really important part of the art education process. It's mm -hmm. okay if that doesn't resonate with you, but if it doesn't resonate with you, then don't take an art class, mm. which is hard when you have required credits and all that. But anyway, right. um, you know, then there are students who work with unfamiliar, messy materials. Like that's mm -hmm. hard for them. I will tell you as a teacher, like there are certain materials I hate teaching with because it triggers sensory discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm just not going to teach those things because you know, there right. are plenty of other materials that, you know, they can learn those skills. But then I have students coming up to me and they're like, well, I want to work with charcoal and pastel. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> so it's like this unavoidable, like you, right. you just have to. So, um, you know, working on assignments that push them out of their comfort zones, I would say across the board, regardless if the student is autistic or not, this has been probably the biggest source of frustration tolerance is, mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of teenagers come into an art class with the expectation that they're going to do projects they want to do and and they have creative freedom and they're just going right, to hang right. out with their friends. But high school yeah. art classes really, the whole point of an art class is pushing you out of your comfort zone to right. strengthen your personal work. And right. so I think it's really hard for students to make that connection and even if I try to explain it that way, it turns into this protest of like, you're taking away our creative freedom. And it's like, That's awesome. no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the solution for all of this is you meet the students where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, you differentiate the instructions or doing part of the drawing for them is a way to help them get started. Adjust the goals of the project and the materials mm -hmm. used. Um, and in relation to like my own technology struggles ask for help, teach them how to do it on their own. Don't do it for them. Right. Um, exactly. And, and I, I think another one that's, that's so funny. Um, I remember I had a student with autism who was a freshman and he was not into art. And I remember he would just like cruise through his projects so that he could spend the rest of the class watching star Wars videos. And I'm like, yeah. that's not going to fly, you know, because it's like, the whole issue of kids finishing ahead creates this problem of like, how are they going to fill the rest of the time? So, you know, you want to push them on skills or you try to encourage like small group critiques with other kids that are finished or, right. no, that's a good you know, idea. or even if you let them free draw, like say, okay, you know, you can free draw, but I want you to work on a certain technical skill that you're passionate about. So, so you're not re reinforcing to them that mm -hmm. if I just, you know, path of least resistance, I can do whatever I want. So, right. so this kid really, really wanted to watch Star Wars. And I'm like, mm -hmm. so I, I just kept coming up to him and I said, all right, well, you need to fill the whole page. So he fills the whole page in like 10 minutes. Okay, well, now I want you to add some details here. And he kept getting so angry with me because mm -hmm. I kept pushing him and I, and and here he is where he's like, I just want to be done. And he has this structure in his mind of I'm right. going to be done. And here I am. I keep coming up to him and I'm like, nope, you need to work no, on this. Not. You know, you need to add more details. So one day he finally had it. He took his sketchbook and he just slammed it on the ground. And every one of the students just like looked up. Right. So then I finally had to pull him aside and I'm like, hey, you can't act that way. 
and he just like he's like i'm done and i don't like mm-hmm. art and stop pushing me to you know do this <laughs> or that and and for better or worse i don't know i'm very experimental with my autism diagnosis but i just straight up said look you're autistic i'm autistic i understand how your brain works i know why you're doing this and right. he kind of had this like freak out oh moment gosh. where he was right. like oh my god you're also autistic you know and mm-hmm. it, and it wasn't like he got offended or anything but sometimes i like to use that as a way to be like hey like i i get the way your brain works that's why i'm pushing you i know what you're doing yeah yeah and yeah. uh and 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 i get i don't want to say that i'm hard on my autistic students but because i understand what the struggles are of autism in the workplace. I really try to grill those skills early Mm -hmm. on in high school because I want them to be prepared and resilient for the workplace. And I straight up told him that. Of course, you know, being a freshman, it it didn't click for him. Nope. Um, Nope. So then, so I email, you know, I emailed the mom and I emailed his caseworker and I wasn't upset. I just said, hey, you know, this is what happened. Here's what we did to address it. The mom was like, all right, that's it. Like, no more Star Wars stuff. And I guess mm. he was he was getting a, a lightsaber as a present. And Ooh. she was like, you better do art or you're not going to get your Star Wars thing. So wow. after that, then he was like, all right, is it done? What should I do? <laughs> like, he was so much more engaged. And, and I was like, oh, the power of Star Wars, I guess, Apparently, using your yeah. special interests to, to get your work done. So then the the even funnier part of the story is uh, the mom told the kid to apologize to me. So he goes, can oh, I talk okay. to you? And I said, yeah, you know, so we, we go into a separate room and he said, uh, I want to tell you I'm sorry, even though I don't think I should apologize to you. And I was like, that's a very autistic response. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> non-apology so, right there. Y- y- well, it's like. It's just like, I'm going to do this, even though I don't understand why I have to do right. this. And I it's wasn't a, even yeah. mad. I'm just like, I get it. Like, you you tried. I'll accept it. <laughs> okay. So anyway. maybe when, when you uh, mature a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, this again and I get you a different perspective. That's hilarious. Funny. What, no, what that's if, funny. What if we in life just came up to people and were like, I'm sorry, even though I don't think I should apologize to you. I think I think that actually happens more often than not. Anyway, so. all right. So what about you? What's what's been your experience with autistic, low frustrated students in your classroom? Well, just kind of to reiterate what you have been talking about. So usually in social studies classroom we're working on projects, there's times and so if we're engaged in projects and there, I see and I notice that there's lack of progress with the student, you know, I'll pull them aside or, or I'll kneel at their desk and have a, you know, one-on-one conversation with them. Like, what's going on? I notice that you seem to be stuck, you know, talk to me what's going on. And so at that point, it's like, okay, let's, let's clarify the steps that you need to do. Let's talk about, okay, you're frustrated on this one piece. What if we leave that piece for now and we go on to another piece that needs to be done so we can finish other parts first? So it's just having that conversation and being aware. And ultimately, it's what you already talked about. What can we do as teachers? We can differentiate assignments. We can be flexible um, with due dates or requirements. Usually, these are the things that are in their IEP or 504. And we can allow extra time for projects as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I think... I know as like being um, co-hosts, 
I've really liked the ability for you to give me structure and say like, all right, this is frustrating you. Let's just, this isn't important. Let's take a break from it. And sometimes Absolutely. people with autism just need permission mm. uh, from a neurotypical guide to say, hey, back off. Like if this is frustrating you, it's okay to take a break and come back to it later and I'll let exactly. you know. And it's exactly. so important because like when we have that frustration, we will still fixate on, fixate on it. And it's mm -hmm. like, I will speak from personal experience. Like it's hard for me to walk away because I, I'm just like, I want to complete this task. And so right, to have right. somebody say you're relieved of this task that breaks the fixation and I'm able to go, okay, now I can right. like, go and move on to something else. Right. Or, or we're flexible in, um, due dates, for example. Right. And that can take a lot of pressure off. Well, if they have that accommodation, if they, if they can, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so teachers have their threshold for frustration tolerance. Yes, Oftentimes, we do. neurodiverse students have behaviors that can really exacerbate some teachers' frustration tolerance. So, Brett, what advice do you have for teachers regarding frustration tolerance? How can they be more flexible and patient so that they don't make a neurodiverse student feel ashamed? Well, I can tell you from personal experience that I've never been frustrated with my class or students at all. It's always gone perfect. Everything is no, no, that's it all. So um, many, many times there's been moments where you get frustrated as a teacher. Usually, you know, the, the, the classic response is the day after you take um, a, a personal day or whatever, you come back and you read the sub report and it's like, oh my gosh, really kids, come on, what happened? So Really what I do when I'm frustrated with my class is we talk it out. I can, I, and I, that wasn't in the very beginning of my teaching career. I had, again, something I learned over time that I could learn how to be myself and that I can make, I could admit when I make mistakes, like if I made an assignment um, and the, the products that I'm getting are below my expectations, then I can have that honest conversation with the class. It's a class discussion. Did I not make this clear? You know, what was going on? And we can, my students at that point were able to have engage in that conversation as well, because I've established the, this moment where, you know, it's not me telling you, this is exactly what has to happen. It's us engaging in this project and creating understanding about what the requirements of the project is. And in that circumstances, we are co-equals in this because I need to communicate better to you and you need to produce better for me so we can meet in the middle kind of thing. So it's being honest and admitting when we make mistakes, um, being open to our classes about changes and adjustments, especially so for um, people who are on the, the spectrum, Something that frustrates people all the time is when you change due dates or you change um, expectations or you change how the structure of the class is going to be and they you, you're, you're just changing it on a whim from their point of view. So having that um, predictability in your classes is also super important for those people who are on the spectrum. So they know, okay, so for the next class, I want to remind you that we're not going to meet here. We're going to meet in the library. And so... Just go straight to the library so we can take attendance and we can start our research. You know, giving them a heads up on changes for schedules and routines also is is another way to um, combat that low frustration tolerance because they the importance for routines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I think that one 
I think important thing I learned, especially with lesson planning is like, if my lesson as an art teacher goes for like two to three weeks and then I just autopilot, I'm like, all right, well, here's the date. I forget three-day weekends or mm -hmm. pep rallies where like, you right. know, the whole day or it's a shortened class period. And so I usually, my students are the ones that are be like, oh, well, we can't do a critique that day because you know, because this is happening and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, no. so then, so then Students I are very like, good at telling us when we have, you know, well, um, yeah, a three-day so weekend or something or like, like, like No, we can't be there. We're not in another one. So, so I feel like, you know, it's so important. Like I, I used to have a paper calendar and I would write down like, okay, like these are all the important school-wide events that are going on and these are all the three-day weekends. Mm -hmm. So then that way I, I have as much predictability as possible, but, you know, at the same time, you know, sometimes it changes. So I think what, what's good is, you know, communication is always key. Make sure you give the students Absolutely. advance notice. You know, mm -hmm. I'm also, I I've noticed, like, I'll tell my students, like if three quarters of the class is just not ready, then mm -hmm. I will extend the deadline and they appreciate that flexibility and grace. And mm -hmm. if, if I have an autistic student that's like, but I've already finished and what am I going to do with that extra time, then I might have a one-on-one -on -one conversation so that we as individuals can create structure, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that that's fair. Like, I think in the workplace, that's also a valid, you know, thing to ask for. Like, if mm -hmm. you've completed something, but then there's extra time and the person with autism is like, what do I do? Then I think it's valid to talk to your supervisor so then they can say like, oh, you're done ahead of time. All right. Well, you know, you can take on this task or, oh, you know, you can take it easier, you know, if you want to work on something personal. So I think that communication in general is really key, you know, when there is change. Right. So I guess, I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Nope. Communication is is key and knowing your students is yeah, what I would say. Definitely. So from my perspective, it's normal and perfectly human for teachers to get frustrated. We carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, and that burns us out. There are a lot of tough quality of life factors in a teacher's life that can make that frustration tolerance lower than usual. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that frustration impacts the way we interact with students. Uh, teachers also carry the weight of meeting the academic and social-emotional needs of a lot of different students including neurodiverse students, and that can be very challenging. Now, I will also say, you know, one of my special interests is social skills. I will invest time in reading about racism and LGBTQ plus rights, mm -hmm. because not only do I enjoy learning those social skills, but it's so incredibly important to me that students feel safe and they can't feel safe if I don't have an understanding of what their background is. And I mm -hmm. don't do the, you know, I don't do the colorblind or I don't see their identity. I see them as students. Um, just because I feel like if I understand who their identity is as a whole, it makes it easier for me to kind of meet them where they're at. Um, yeah. But not a lot of teachers are like that. You know, mm. um, that's just, that's a form of overextension and exhaustion. And it is, you know, like parenting, teachers need to be able to replenish themselves and not right, take right. on extra work as a way to overextend to help students. And so I think that that can come off as, you know, 
I think parents of kids with autism can feel frustrated because maybe their child feels neglected, that their needs are not getting met, that Mm -hmm. they're not being seen. But you have to think about, you know, there are a lot of kids who don't feel seen. You know, think about Mm -hmm. kids of color in a predominantly white school. That's Mm -hmm. really hard. And then if you're a white teacher, you know, how much energy are you putting into your understanding of white privilege and teaching kids of color? You right. know, there, there, there's just so many dynamics that a teacher has to be aware of, and it takes a whole career to be invested in understanding what that is. And, um, and I, and I can't speak for all teachers. I do think some teachers are just like, oh, the caseworkers got it. Oh, the counselor, counselors got it. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's that whole like path of least resistance. Um, and it's not because we don't care. It's just that we're burned out. We just don't have those resources to be able to, you know, do research beyond what we're capable of. And right. what that what that creates is uh, frustration for that student's behavior. But the thing is, if you think about it, you're not catering to that one autistic kid. You're mm-hmm. trying to manage 30 students. Right. You know, and so there's this part of you that's like, you know, all right, I got to go check in on every individual kid and I can't give, I can't right, give right. one kid too much individual attention or it neglects other kids. And then you're trying to think holistically about the, you know, the group. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, it's this huge balancing act. And I think some parents don't understand that social emotional dance that teachers do Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, inevitably, some students do get lost in the shuffle and we and we really try not to make that happen. But it just mm-hmm. does because we're right. human. Um, I will also say, as a former autistic teacher, I also got frustrated with neurodiverse behaviors and neurotypical mm-hmm. behaviors, like mm-hmm. just because I understand why a neurodiverse student acts the way they do doesn't mean that I had a lot of patience for it all the time. Right. Um, So I do think it's important for teachers to reflect on what we are patient about and what pushes us to our edge. What do we do when we hit that edge? Mm -hmm. What needs to be changed in the routines of our classroom to lessen that frustration? Mm -hmm. How are we taking care of ourselves to expand our patience? And, you know, a big part of teaching, too, is like, is our is our instruction clear? You know, because a lot of classroom management struggles sometimes come from kids just not fully understanding what you're telling them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And and sometimes that has to do with the the demographic of the class, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, what their intellectual needs are. So, you know, you just you can't go into it with an assumption uh, or your bias. And, and I think that's why it's good to have those intro projects. So you can kind of gauge like, all right, this is where the kids are. Um, and then sometimes our frustration tolerance comes with experience of teaching. And, um, you know, so if you're a new teacher, you're going to get more frustrated because a lot Mm -hmm. of things are new. And then some veteran teachers get frustrated because they don't want to change the way that they've always done things. And again, you know, when, when you've done things the way they've always been, it takes a lot of work to try new things. Yes. And some teachers just don't want to, don't want to do that because they're preserving their own energy. Um, and, or there's you a know, new platform that we have to learn. Well, and I was going to say COVID like, yeah. 
Talk about frustration tolerance challenges. Um, I mean, I remember teaching online and feeling like, shouldn't they understand how to learn remotely? Like, it made sense to me, and I thought that they would get it, but they didn't. And it was just, it was hard for everybody, and that required, uh, you know, I guess going back to the metaphor of, like, being an autism parent, you're being thrust into a situation where Mm -hmm. you have no idea how to handle it. You start with what you know, you realize it doesn't work, you you try to gather new skills, but then at the end of right. the day, like after two years, you're like, all right, I guess I know how to teach remotely. And then when we went back to in-person, right. I was like, yes, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Right. Um, and then just, just to dovetail on that, um, yeah. it was hard for all of us because we had to reset expectations, right? So, and and the analogy was that our principal used is that now that we're in the COVID teaching mode where we're hybrid, we're in person, we're 100% online and we're transitioning through all of these things, um, being a teacher feels like a first year teacher again because you don't have any of the answers or solutions. You're doing something for the first time. You have to communicate to your students. These are the new expectations and enforce those and, and manage that. So it was extremely difficult for all of us. Yeah. As far as and it, including our our students as well, because they had to navigate this uh, from scratch as well. Yeah. And I will say, like, with my teaching. So the way that I taught is that, you know, it didn't matter whether a student was talented at art or not. If they put in the work and they completed the project and they did the best they could, the lowest they get is a B. And right. basically, they got a C or lower if they just didn't turn anything in or the project was partially finished. And in my mind, I'm like, that's easy. You wouldn't believe how many students got E's, D's and F's because they weren't turning things in. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and I think like it frustrated me because I'm like, this is a, this is a common sense problem. This is not a competency of like, how do you do art? It's like, turn in your stuff you right, know right. how to do this in other classes. And so and I it think was the like, same. Yeah, it was the yeah. same for us as well, because, you know, I was shocked about how many low grades I had. I mean, it was yeah. just, to, just do the work. Right. Um, and, and so, and, and you, you know, know, you, go ahead. you try to, you try to, you know, help them, but then it, there comes a point where you're just like, mm-hmm. this is what happens if you don't turn stuff in. Like, right. Right. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so have compassion for your own frustration and the frustration of other students. Give your students a voice to vent their frustrations. Sometimes their feedback can be really helpful for modifying lesson plans or classroom routines. Mm -hmm. That's subjective. Some feedback is fantastic and some feedback is very selfish on the student's part that you can't change as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, you know, I want to have more time with my friends and I want to be on my phone. And it's like, That's not happening. All right. So then the last thing I'll say is just in the same way that we have to examine our bias against um, BIPOC students and LGBTQ plus students, we have to do the same for neurodiverse students. Low frustration tolerance can be based on anti-autistic and ableist beliefs that systems and cultures reinforce. It's important for teachers to constantly reflect and reevaluate their bias when it comes to the perception of behaviors even though it takes a lot of work. If you don't want to do the work, talk to the caseworker and parents on what to do. So what about low frustration tolerance for employers and coworkers of neurodiverse adults? What are your thoughts? 
Again, I think um, it goes back to the examples that we already talked about, right? Um, know your limits, know your triggers, know when um, low frustration tolerance can be helpful that we talked about earlier in the podcast, and then know, know when it can be a personal roadblock for you. Um, and then I would, the last thing I would say is just be open and communicate with your employer, right? These are the things um, that I struggle with. What are some ways that um, you can help me or I can learn to help myself or I can work with my coworkers around these, these particular issues? Mm-hmm. Nicole, what do you think? Uh, so I want to go back to reiterating the point that our love frustration tolerance for someone else's behavior can come from implicit bias. Mm-hmm. This reveals a lot about the power dynamics between people born with racial, socioeconomic, gender, sexuality, and able-bodied privileges, and people with marginalized identities. I think that's a very important part of getting along in the workplace that most people don't get training on. Mm. Um, and I and I, and I will say this: like, I have learned a lot about other forms of oppression, like homophobia, transphobia, ableism, sizeism, all of that from Mm -hmm. racial equity training right? Um, because I think that there's a lot of really important vocabulary of describing what systemic oppression looks like, what, what interpersonal discrimination and, and marginalization looks like that Mm -hmm. I think uh, racial equity training really taps in on very, very well. Mm -hmm. And I, I, and, you know, as far as I know, there, there hasn't been a lot of similar training on ableism compared to racial equity. So I feel like, you know, when you invest in one type of uh, equity and inclusion training, you're able to take those skills and apply it to other people. So again, Mm -hmm. that's not to say that if you understand the struggles of a person of color, that it's exactly the same as somebody who is LGBTQ plus or uh, Mm -hmm. somebody who is, you know, disabled. But what it does mean is, now you have a lens and terminology to see things and be able to reflect on how you are creating uh, difficulties for other people, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, um, workplaces don't have the resources and understanding of how to support neurodiverse adults the way schools do to support neurodiverse students. And even then, like that that's an area of growth. I thought schools really had it down, but some schools get it. Some schools don't. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that has to do with the lack of resources in general for autistic adults. If they have the resources and the willingness to employ neurodiverse employees, I think there tends to be more patience. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a difference between low frustration tolerance and having baseline expectations of productivity for all employees. If a person with autism isn't getting the job done, then it's reasonable to have a meeting with them about it. Absolutely. Um, My advice for autistic adults, reflect on low frustration tolerance with a therapist or a mentor at work. Mm -hmm. What do you, what do you experience low frustration tolerance with at work? How do you cope with it? How does your way of coping with it impact other people? Right. What do you think other people's low frustration tolerance is with autistic behavior? How is that a reflection of your actions that can change for the better? How much of that has to do with their ignorance about autism or their mm-hmm. internalized ableism? What are you going to do to address that if you are comfortable having an open conversation about it? Mm-hmm. And then read books about leadership and workplace dynamics so that you can understand the stress that working professionals carry. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I have read a lot of books about leadership and that has helped me a lot to uh, not only understand, you know, why my leaders operate the way that they do, but also mm-hmm. what do I do to support them as much as they're supporting me? Um, John Maxwell w- wrote a really good book called the, the 360 degree leader. So it's mm-hmm. the idea of like, you have influence with your co-workers, you have influence over the people you are leading or helping such as, you know, clients or customers, and then you are being led by somebody else. So it's a really good way to kind of understand like how you pivot with all those mm. different resources. Mm-hmm. Um, just because teachers can show patience and understanding towards a neurodiverse student doesn't mean that they have the same type of patience towards a neurodiverse coworker. Interesting. Yes. Um, and I, I've heard this a lot. Um, I've had personal experience with this and I've talked to other teachers that felt the same way. Um, teachers have skills to interact with autistic people on the basis of authority, not with a peer relationship. Um, teachers might exhaust their resources supporting students that they don't have as much patience interacting with a neurodiverse coworker. Um, teachers also have ignorant, stigmatic, stereotyping biases towards autism. Mm-hmm. And their capacity to interact with a student with autism may not expand to understanding with how to interact with neurodiverse adults in the workplace. Yeah, just to just to add a little bit to that, I think as teachers, and this is the the mindset of educators, I, th- I think, I'm not speaking for all schools or something, but I, I can definitely tell you that it came from my experience in the schools that I've been working in. A lot of our professional development had to do with how can we engage with our students better, mm-hmm. right? Based on um, circumstances, um, their ethnic background, their socioeconomic background, all of these different factors but we really didn't have a lot of training on how do we interact with each other better, right? Into a more collaborative and communicative way. Well, and I think an issue with that too is teachers think that they have those skills because we interact with so many diverse students, Mm -hmm. but when there's conflict, um, and I think I see this like, it's not just neurodiverse people. I think that this happens with any sort of diverse identity Mm-hmm. You default to the skills that you automatically have, which is I'm going to interact with a diverse teenager or child, mm-hmm. and that's how you communicate with that neurodiverse, that diverse coworker, which mm-hmm. can feel really stigmatizing at times. Right. And then when you try to have transparent conversations and say, you know, hey, this isn't working. Can I can I tell you why this is harmful and what we can do differently? Teachers Mm -hmm. can get, you know, especially like progressive teachers can get really defensive because they think to themselves like, but I already am inclusive. I am an ally. Like, I have it figured out. And I think that that's really harmful for teachers to have that belief um, because what that does is it prevents that ability to reflect on what it means to have privilege Mm. and how that privilege impacts a bias that -hmm. affects how we interact with people with a different identity. Mm -hmm. And again, like, I think racial equity training really hits the nose on the head with that because, you know, if you're like a white ally, what you'll do is you're like, all right, I'm going to research the heck about people of color and what their struggles are. But what Mm -hmm. they might not do is reflect on what it means to be white. And Mm -hmm. so 
having those conversations to say, hey, what you're doing isn't working, that that creates a lot of vulnerability for people with privilege to realize like they're doing something wrong. And that might be a reflection of advantages they have and that's mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And so then they get defensive and play the whole like, well, I have it figured out and you're the one that's, you know, right, wrong right, in right, your right. perception of me. So I do think that that's an area of growth for everybody, not just mm -hmm. within education, but I think it's valid. I think that we just make the assumption that because we have that equity and inclusion training for students, it's just applicable for everybody, but that's a great it's point, not, yeah. it's, it's really not. And how often in equity and inclusion training, are we reflecting on our own background? Correct. Because all we do is reflect on the backgrounds of other people. Mm -hmm. So Good anyway, um, neurodiverse employees can serve a teaching role. They have to in some ways. Right. Some people will do extra research on neurodiversity in the workplace, but not everyone will. They won't know what to do unless you self-advocate, which there's, that's a double-edged sword. I think that right. self-advocacy can make a big difference in a workplace, mm -hmm. but sometimes, like I'll speak personally, I get burned out having the same conversation over Correct. and over about yeah, what autism yeah. is, what neurodiversity is, mm -hmm. how to support that person. And within education, it just gets to the point where it's like, this is not new. You work right. with students with autism, you should have this figured out, but they don't. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Communication norms are really important. This gets both parties on the same page about how to communicate respectfully and what each person's communication needs are. And low frustration tolerance is very human and mm -hmm. is a reflection of where we are culturally when it comes to neurodiversity awareness. Mm -hmm. At the same time, low frustration tolerance can be very toxic. If the neurodiverse and neurotypical workers are not willing to be flexible with their thinking and communication style, then a change needs to be made. And sometimes that change involves maybe the neurodiverse person finding a different job. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So we have come to the end of this podcast. So what we've talked about are the signs of low frustration tolerance, the causes of those, the strengths and struggles of having low frustration tolerance. And when neurotypical people have that, what does that look like? And then finally, what can be done to increase frustration tolerance in general? Our next episode is why people with autism experience transition struggles. You know, I was looking forward to you saying low frustration tolerance five times. And uh, you know what? You, I got out of that. You out of that. <laughs> I so did. That's right. <laughs> Lucky you. All right. Follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode, which if you can't find it on social media, it is also on our website, which is understandingautism.info. Mm -hmm. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas.